0: Good morning to all of you. It's good to see you. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we pray that these words, this moment that you have set aside, in our minds and hearts, we felt that we were deciding to go to church. And yet, really, what we're doing is answering your invitation. We're compelled to be with others, with you. So we pray that these, this text and these words and all that we see and do and hear will be illuminated by your Holy Spirit, and it will be your Holy Spirit that speaks to us, inspires us, and moves us. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I wonder for you what it would be like to walk out into your backyard in the morning with a cup of coffee and a newspaper, take a seat to look out at your backyard or whatever it might look like, and then all of a sudden hear a rumble and the, the ground beneath you disappear. This is something that happened uh, in Russia. You can see one of the little houses that happened right in the middle of a town. You can, can you see the little house next to it? Those are really houses, they're not little models. That's some hole, isn't it? That was a town that wasn't really built on a firm foundation, (laughs) but was built on uh, things that they couldn't see, undercurrents that were going on. And can you imagine what it's like to stand on the brink of that and to watch your house coming that close? When I was in San Diego, we had a, um, an incidence of this in which a, a, sink, a huge sinkhole opened up in Mount Soledad, which is right near Mission Beach and all that. And a couple of houses went in. And for a couple of years afterwards, their houses, you couldn't go back in them because they were slowly sliding into that sink, sinkhole. And of course, we all think that this is something so foreign and so far away. But you know, honestly, this happens to all of us all the time. Maybe not a huge crater of Earth disappearing, but maybe it's a midnight phone call, an ambulance ride, a court order, a lost career or an estranged child, an affair or a divorce. These events are seismic events. They are things that shake the Earth beneath us. And when they happen, we feel the ground giving way. They're not only confined to our personal and family life, but they're also things that happen in our church life as well, which this particular text that we're going to read is really speaking more to our life together as a church than it is to individuals. They can happen in a church when there's a leadership betrayal of some kind, an irreconcilable deficit, a scandal, or a split over whatever and they're accompanied, each and every one of them, by a thunderous rumbling of the ground giving way beneath us, of all that we thought was firm and solid, gives way, and we can no longer count on it. Not only that, but it sucks in some very precious things, including life at times. Listen then to Matthew seven twenty four through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand." The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. This is the word of the Lord. The one thing before we get into the, the uh, midst of the text that I want to point out to you is <coughs> sometimes we don't read a text for what it really says and I want you to pay attention to this text that it doesn't say... If the rain comes, and it doesn't say when the storm surrounds you, and it doesn't say, and if you hear the word, then those storms won't happen. But it guarantees that a storm is coming. It guarantees that in your life, there are going to be moments where we face those storms. When we face the rains and the wind, and it pushes against our very being... This text is a a part of a slightly larger text that closes the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, that's part of a larger story of everything that Jesus preached and everything that Jesus was about. Jesus had been actually addressing his disciples and the crowds that surrounded him had been eavesdropping on that address. And Jesus ends his teaching with words that send a message. Only those who hear and do, as our young people heard this morning in the message, are acceptable disciples. In fact, right before this particular text, it had been the verses about, some will say, Lord, Lord, and I'm gonna look at them, I'm gonna say, who are you? I don't even know you. So hearing and doing are acceptable disciples. And hearing and doing, are specific qualities of Matthew's understanding of discipleship. In Matthew, you'll hear this over and over again. It, it, for Matthew, we don't hear rightly unless we also do. For him, it's head and heart and will and hands are integrated into a life that God that God has given us a life that trusts God and serves humanity. We are God's servants for Matthew. There's an old saying that floats around in preaching circles, and that preaching says that preaching is not so much about getting something said as it is about getting something heard. And that's interesting. I've heard that for a number of years, but then this text says differently This text goes a step further, and Jesus makes it quite clear that for him, preaching is not so much about getting something heard as it is about getting something done. (coughs) For Jesus, a true hearing of his teaching involves not merely the ability to parrot his teaching, not merely the ability to quote scripture and to be able to let you know that you know all about the teachings of Jesus and that you know these things and you can quote them. Preaching is not so much about being able to parrot, it, but it's also an indispensably the ability to embody it into your life. That means we become living and breathing and speaking and moving around reflection of Christ's teaching. That it's no longer something that we put on, but it's something that is, alive and growing within us. And it can't help but spill out of every pore of our body into the world. Because to do so is the will of, Jesus says, that's the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus tells us in previous verses that even calling on the name of Jesus as Lord or performing deeds of power in Jesus in Jesus' names, are themselves inadequate. So even if we were to demonstrate mighty things, even if our very word drew thousands of people to this this place, it would be inadequate. And in fact, Jesus insists that it would constitute a form of evil doing if it didn't take place in the context of doing what God wanted you to do. I mean, we can do great things with people. But if it's not what God wants you to do, even when the outcome is positive, if it's not what God wants you to do, then Jesus says that it's as though he has a deaf ear to that, to all those actions. So none of our orthodoxy or our our piety or our pious practices or our understanding of doctrinal soundness or correctness, none of the great and wonderful things that we do to be good matters a single bit unless God's will be done within that. So according to this passage, knowing Jesus means listening to Jesus And listening to Jesus means that both hearing his words means acting on them. And so living out God's will, a particular life of action, is how Jesus is actually and correctly known and interpreted and encountered and companioned and followed. It's when we live out Jesus that those things are known to other people. And it's not merely by thinking or talking in a particular way, but it's by acting and living in a particular way. Jesus is so much more demanding. Isn't it enough that we talk the talk? Must we also do it? Must we also embody it? Must we also believe it? Isn't it enough that we give a little bit away? Do we have to really give ourselves with it? is it enough that we help sometimes? Must we always help? Jesus uses the image of two builders to make his point. And this is interesting because Jesus is a carpenter. So we assume that Jesus knows something about construction. He understands the construction business. And he understands that no one builds a house in bad weather. Too much heat or too much cold can really impede construction, and it can hold it up. Construction happens on good weather days. I know that. My kids are getting a new roof on their house, and I just went to see them. And um, they had their part of the roof stripped away, and the roofers left for the night. And my son-in-law came home and saw that and texted them and say, should we be worried that there's an openness in our living room that we didn't have before, and that there's 25% chance of rain. And the person texting back said, oh, no, it's San Diego. It never rains. Guess what? (laughs) It rained. Good builders know that foul weather is going to happen. That's That's the point of this. It's not just about if it happens. It's about when it happens. And living a life that is committed to Christ and living for Christ doesn't mean you're not going to have foul weather in your life. It doesn't mean you're not going to have struggles. It doesn't mean you're not going to have disappointments and impasses with other people. But what is your house going to be standing on when those things happen? That can make the difference of whether your house crumbles or whether your house stands solid. If the foundation is going to be solid, it has to be deep. And the house will be able to stand whatever happens. If it's on solid ground, ground that doesn't shift, doesn't cave way, doesn't become a sinkhole. If the foundation is shallow and it's on shifting ground, there's no way that the house is going to be able to remain intact. That's why houses fall down when we have earthquakes. No matter sometimes how strong or how retrofitted it is, it cannot withstand the shaping ground. New houses look very pretty. They, the home inspector comes, and they can uncover some minor flaws that have taken place, and they can tweak those, and they can make them better, and they're easily fixed. But the test of that house, the sturdiness, can't be tested until the storm comes. You just can't do it. Although the roof looks fine, there's no way of really knowing how sound it is until the rain comes. Although the windows look sturdy, there's no way of really figuring out if those windows are, are uh, measuring up to everything that was promised in the advertisement until the wind starts blowing. And it's the same thing that it is with the disciples. It's easy to learn the right words and engage in rituals and rites. It's easy for us to do all the things we're supposed to to be all the things, to look like the, what we're supposed to look like. But it's truly tested when the storms come. Have you ever heard somebody say, I don't understand why this is happening. I'm a good person. Have you ever heard yourself say, I don't know why this is happening. I'm a Christian. I give to the church. I, I read my Bible. I do all these things as though there can be no storm any longer because after all, that was our insurance policy. We're looking for an insurance policy instead of a solid rock to build our house. And the fact of the matter is, there is nothing that takes us out of life who are we unless we're engaged in life and we can lean over into the arms of Jesus when when the storm blows. Jesus doesn't call us out of life. Jesus calls us deeper into life so that we can come alongside people whose houses are shattered and washing up in pieces onto the shore, such is the life of a true disciple and of the community of faith. Jesus calls us into a life of being and doing where words and deeds are interwoven, where you can't separate them out. You can't look at a person saying, but you just said this and now you're doing this. I think one of the greatest things that we strive for, let me back up. One of the things I strive for, I don't want to presume for you. You may be far ahead of me in this game one of the things I strive for is for me not to be surprised from my outside to my inside. That were you to see the inside, it would look like the outside, and the outside would look like the inside because they're integrated. I'm not thinking one thing and then doing another. I'm not doing one thing and thinking another. It's the same. So what you see is going to be what you get. That's a goal. That's a discipline that happens. And when you see that, that not aligning and not shaping up, then you step back and you say, what's going on? What's happening? Why are these things out of sync with each other? And you may even feel conflicted, worried, stressed out, overburdened. Why all those things? Because you're out of sync with yourself. The life of the disciple, trust and service, springs from an understanding that life is a gift from God and that God sustains life. Life is a gift from God and then God sustains life. It's like getting a lifetime warranty on God's service. You're not going to get that from a whirlpool. You're going to get that from God. I'm giving you life, and I'm your lifetime companion on sustaining that life. Lean into me. Learn from me. Take my yoke. Follow me. Lose yourself. Jesus, all along in Jesus' life, is trying to teach us into the best way to be our best selves. Sometimes we take it as, well, I don't want to do that. That's a rule and a regulation. No, it's a door that's opening to say, this is the way to be your best self, to understand another person in the best light. Matthew tells us that the crowd is astounded by Jesus' teaching. I'll be honest with you. I think I'm astounded by Jesus' teaching constantly. I cannot get past how Jesus knows us from inside and out so intricately and so profoundly not only knows us, but then reaches out to us and provides us with gifts to know ourselves so that we can know each other and so that we can know God. Jesus walks the walk and talks the talk, and if you turned him inside out, you would see the exact same thing. Jesus is what he preaches and teaches. We're also astounded that through examples of surprising reversals and the unexpected that Jesus teaches, that the life of the disciples includes prayer and repentance and reconciliation and generosity and justice and hospitality. And look at your own life. And that's what we have to measure ourselves by. Are we on the right road? Are these the fruits of your life? Are these things that you're able to give freely to one another and to, to your own life? And not only that, friends, but as members of this congregation, is this the life of our congregation? Are we a congregation that's focused on prayer and repentance and reconciliation, generosity and justice and hospitality? Are we a congregation that is focused on Jesus as the center? Because that's what we have to look at beyond our own personal experiences. We aren't separated here. We're one body here. So is this the reflection of who we are? Is this impossible work? Absolutely. This is impossible work. It can't be done. It can't be done on our own. We can't do it on our own. And that's like the song, you know, I need you, I need you, I need you. I feel like what that song isn't about is somebody out there, we need you here. What we're saying is an affirmation. We can't do this by ourselves. We need you. We need you. Is it hard work? Absolutely. It's the hardest work. Being a part of the body of Christ is not easy. It's demanding. It demands of your time. It demands of your talent. It demands of your money. It demands everything because it's the body of Christ. And it's what we hope to do. It's what we're all about. Jesus shows us how disciples live. They live by keeping God at the center of everything, and everything comes out of that. Every marching order we get, every time we feel compelled to serve, coming from the heart of God, we look back into God, and God looks back into us. And doing what we do because we love one another, checking ourselves. This makes for a sure foundation. You see, being Christian is a deliberate choice. Now, God loving us and saving us is not particular our choice. God chose to do that. That's our Reformed faith tells us that. God chose us. God chose to die for us. God chose to save us. But we have a choice of being a Christian or not, of following Jesus. We have that choice. And that choice is intended to shape what we do in the world. There's no secular when it comes to being a Christian. You can walk into a room, and some would say it's a secular room because it looks like a Starbucks. But we can say it's not a secular room because Jesus is in this room. We flavor that coffee. We don't serve others for a reward that we get. We don't provide care and help to others so that we can have our 15 minutes of fame. We're content to work behind the scenes on behalf of others because we're grateful to God who loves us and cares for us and watches over us and has done all of these things so abundantly to us, through us, with us, through other people. We have been served and loved through other people. It's about what God is calling us to do, to be and to do for God's realm. You know, living in God's realm is a an incredible equalizer. All persons are invited to participate. There's plenty of room for all, regardless of your race, your color, your ethnicity, your sexuality, your ability, or your your nationality. All disciples, ancient and contemporary, have the same expectation that they'll be integrated, hand and heart and head, focused on God the Creator. That's what we all hope for that words and deeds are important and they have the power to help or hurt but in Matthew 7 words and deeds go hand in hand they are not separated for the disciple words and deeds are part of a whole and all of that whole always points towards God's actions it's towards God's actions not our actions and it's towards our response of gratitude to God, who creates us and nurtures us. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus challenges us. Jesus, who sets the standard. is Jesus who holds us accountable. It's Jesus for life in the community and provides a foretaste of life in God's realm. It's sometimes I hear people laugh when I say, this is what the kingdom looks like. They look at each other, and they go, yikes. Or they look at the empty seats and they say, where are my friends? Is there a party going on across the street that we don't know about? And we weren't invited? Where are the friends from your neighborhood? Where are are they? And it's not about going to church. It's about being a part of the kingdom of God. We are called to a life that is sustained by God's presence, by God's power and by God's protection and good weather and bad weather in any kind of weather forevermore. But it's important, once again, I want to reiterate this. It's important not to narrow and diminish this text down to a life coaching section or a Christian pep talk. That's not what this is. To build a life on loving your enemy, to build a life of non-retaliation, And to build a life on returning good for evil will feel like a life lived in a hurricane. It's not a peaceful life. I'm convinced that's why Christ says, peace I give you. That peace is not your sitting down and reflecting on your navel kind of life. It's like living in a hurricane. It shakes, it moves, it whirls, it threatens, and yet we feel grounded and we feel... We feel tethered. That's the peace. But it's in a life of faith that the center will always hold, because the universe is created and maintained and redeemed by the one that's speaking in this text, by Jesus. However uncertain the foundation feels, and storms in our life often feel so uncertain, and there are even storms that in which a person dies. But the house will stand. That house is the church. And there's no promise of individual safety or flourishing. But there is a promise that no matter what happens, the church is going to go on. That's the promise. So tempted as we are to turn these passages maybe into promises for me instead of promises for us. The church is Noah's Ark. It's tossed around helplessly, yet safe and dry and smelly, and rancorous, all at the same time. And the only thing that makes it bearable on the inside, as is often said, is the storm that's outside. And then I leave you with this. That's a subtle way of letting you know I'm winding up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this to say, and it's so beautiful to me. I just let it sit in my heart and mind over and over again. He says, what if there now, for us to say and do when the one word that had to be spoken has been spoken and the one work of obedience that had to be offered to the Father has been offered? What is there for us to do? So our call is to hear the words of Jesus and to act on them, not picking them selectively or choosing which ones to obey. Christ gives us his word on one condition, that we understand that, that we understand that Christ gives us His word because he has an exclusive attachment to us. It's exclusive. He doesn't share us with other gods. And sometimes this feels very costly to us, but I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, that it's because it's because of grace that it's God's grace that calls us to follow Jesus. There is no life without Jesus. And we lose our life to find our life. And all the rest of Jesus' teachings that seem so contrary and upside down are part of this storm that blew into that upper room at Pentecost and empowered the people to finally hear one another And not only hear one another, but then do what they needed to do. Thanks be to God. Let's go to God in prayer. We thank you, God, for everything. There's nothing that we can't thank you for. And God, we pray that from time to time, in a moment, in a day, All the gauze will be blown away, and we will see clearly, even for a breath or a moment, that there is nothing more important and nothing larger than being a part of your story. There is nothing that presses us so deeply than to stand on solid ground and build our house. We pray all of these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.